0: This morning, we're going to be looking at chapters 27 through 28, verses 1 and 2, and all of 29 and 30. So, uh, I'm not going to read all of that this morning, but I want us to see the story of uh, David with those chapters, particularly 27 and 29 and 30. Uh, There's an interlude in, in... Chapter 28 has to deal with Saul, and I'll explain why that falls where it does. Um, and I want to show you a uh, a slide, if we can, to get it up. But, but David, uh, when we last were with him, he was in a very difficult spot, and that was, um, as you know that from the story, he had run to the Philistines because for eight to ten years now he has been running from Saul. Saul has been trying to kill David, and that has led him uh, to flee uh, the house of Saul, flee the area of Saul, and then as we saw after chapter 27, another confrontation with Saul, David has left the land and gone to the Philistines. And while he is there, initially things seem to prosper for, for David, but um, he, he has to in effect lead a double life uh, because he is presenting himself a, as somebody he's not in order to flourish among the Philistines. One day the Lord of... of, there are five lords of the Philistines or or kings of the Philistine people and David has gone to Achish and one day Achish says to David, David, uh, we're going out, the whole Philistine nation, the five lords and their their peoples, uh, we're all going to fight Israel, we're going to fight Saul, And I want you at my right hand. I want you at my side. This puts David in an incredible position. What will he do? And that's where we left David. And chapter 29 deals with what happens, because Achish, with David and his men, they go up to Aphek. And I wanted to give you some sense of where Afik is. Well, it's way, way north. (laughs) And uh, uh, the point is, you may recall that Ziklag, which is where David, his men, and their families have been living, is way south. And this is way north. In fact, there's a note in the chapter that it's a three-days ride from Aphek to Ziklag. And uh, at one point in the story uh, there are men who are just completely exhausted because they have ridden the three days up to Aphek and there they have been turned around and sent home because the other lords of the Philistines don't trust David. They say, hey, Isn't this the guy that they sang pop songs about? You know, Saul uh, killed his hundreds, David his thousands. Uh, So they send him home. They don't trust him. And that delivers David from a a horrible predicament. He was really caught between a rock and a hard place. And as I have wanted to explain to us, David, in my opinion, uh, it's important to know, we don't really know. 1 Samuel does not tell us David's heart or his motives. But I have made a case that that I think David uh, lacked trust in the Lord. I think he was exhausted from running from Saul, and he had decided in his own heart on his own plans and gone to the Philistines, to, to King Achish of, of Gath, of the Philistines, and had done this to just be done with Saul. And that's what we read about in chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. Uh, but David finds himself in this difficult situation at this point, and as I said, he is delivered. But what I want us to appreciate is that even in this in this period, this season of David's life, uh, God, although he's not mentioned, there's no reference of David referring to God, consulting God. Even though he's not mentioned, God is not absent. And even though David has run, in my opinion, in the wrong direction, as sometimes we do. When we fail and falter and stumble in our trust in the Lord, sometimes we turn to trust other things, sometimes we rely upon our highest human aspirations and efforts, And yet, even in that, God is present. And even though he is not mentioned, he is not absent. And out of these three chapters, 27, 29, and 30, as we are focused in on David, I really see God waiting for David to turn to him and to do great things in His life. And God can be waiting in our lives, too. Sometimes we may not feel His presence, but He is not absent. And in some cases, where we're trying to manage things on our own, in our own strength, our own wisdom, according to our own plans, God is waiting for us to turn to Him to do great things. This A couple of weeks ago, um, a man came to see me, and his his life is a tragedy, some of it his making. But his start in life was a horror story of abuse, mistreatment. I, to hear his story made me weep. Made me cry. And he's questioning where was God? Where does God find a place in all of this? What could ever correct, alter, redirect, make something out of my life, which is still an ongoing. Horror story. I told him nothing is wasted with God. And it's been my experience. There have been some times that I've run in the wrong direction. And as I looked at the wreckage in my wake, It seemed meaningless, it seemed unrecoverable, unredeemable. Or when I hit bottom, rock bottom, where could I go? But in the Lord I found, and this has been not only my experience, perhaps it's yours. I know it's the experience of others. God takes all of those broken pieces that that seem at odds with one another and to have no worth, purpose, or meaning. And in Christ, as the centerpiece, the organizing piece, all of those broken pieces find new meaning, new purpose, new value. Things that even... I would have spared myself if I had the chance. In God's redeeming hands, those things can be a source of understanding, compassion, and help to others. And they can mature us and wisen our souls in ways. With the light of Christ in our lives, all of those disparate and seemingly sharp-edged pieces can fit together into a beautiful new puzzle and a picture of new life. That's what I see happening here in chapters 27 through 30. Nothing is wasted with God. Oh, they've finally got the picture up. Afek isn't even at the top of that map. It's further up. And as you can see at the very bottom is Ziklag. So uh, there's a lot of writing and uh, travel and exhaustion involved in going up and back uh, which would have been six, about six days straight. But what I want us to appreciate is nothing is wasted with God. Can you advance that slide? And knowing nothing is, adva- is wasted with God, recovery is awaiting us if only we will turn to the Lord, the Lord alone who restores. Uh, When we left David, he was between a rock and a hard place, as I said, and, and I believe that he had been running in the wrong direction, and that was... Really built on the opening of, of chapter 27 and the events of that chapter. But what's interesting is in chapter 27, verse 7, this is what it says And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months this season of David's life was 16 months. Why is that given to us? Why is that important? Why is it set in front of all the things that are reported and that transpire during this period of his life? Well, I believe it's because this season of David's life ends with the very battle that David is being asked by the Lord of the Philistines, uh, Achish, to fight with him in. And in that battle, Saul is killed. In other words, David... After years of fleeing Saul, but staying with the land, and contrary to his own desires, which I've, I've pointed out. For example, going back into chapter 26, when David was in a standoff with Saul, he and one other man, Abishai, snuck down into their camp. God enabled him to penetrate that camp, and they stood over a sleeping Saul. And Abishai wanted to kill Saul right then. David stayed his hand and said, Abishai, don't do that. The Lord will take care of Saul. Whether he will take him out, whether he will die of natural causes or die in battle, he is the Lord's anointed. We will not touch him. He belongs to the Lord. And yet, David is so exhausted from running, then he turns and runs to the enemy, to a godless enemy, an enemy that serves and worships many foreign gods, and has to lead a double life during that time, engages in deception and lies, in many ways does things to his own heart and soul, in my opinion, that lead him in a direction away from the Lord. And I think if only he had known that in just 16 months God was going to deal with Saul in his life. Sometimes, maybe lots of times, if we get down into the details of our lives, we give up on the Lord rather than wait upon the Lord. At those times when we need to trust him. I realize that no one can know your pain, and pain can have a full-bodied uh, range of impact on a person's life, from emotional pain to physical pain, or a combination of the two. But if we know the pain will end, We can endure it in ways that we can't when it seems to be open-ended. It's that sense of never-ending. And it's ironic to me that David fled to the Philistines just 16 months before Saul would no longer be an issue in his life. This is a story of turning to the Lord, A story of God restoring. But when we dabble in Philistine ways, we can damage our souls in ways that make us vulnerable in some ways ever on. Not that the Lord will not be the Lord, but sometimes we can't unsee, unhear, untaste, unexperience certain things. And they can be used of God, but only in his strength. Because in our strength, they can be overcoming. In our strength, they can draw us away back to Philistine ways, as it were. I just mention that because David, is, we will see, experiences a, a full recovery when he turns to the Lord after he hits rock bottom. But the interesting thing is in some of the experiences, some of the massacres that David uh, engaged in were not of the Lord. They were not of a holy nature. And in the end, his great desire to build the temple for the Lord is denied to him because, we're told, he had blood on his hands. In fact, we're told, you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. First Chronicles 22.8 in chapter 28.3, you have become a man of war. And that carries on even after he becomes king. It's like he's drawn back into the human nature of those things, even though as a young man in chapter 17.47 of 1 Samuel, he had declared, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David's caught between a rock and a hard place. He's landed himself in a jam. We might say David brought it on himself, but 1 Samuel doesn't really tell us his motives. I've kinda given you my perspective so that Maybe we can appreciate that nothing is wasted with God. He uses even the broken pieces when we really put our lives into his hands and uses them for good. But here he is in that situation where he is at the side of, of uh, Akish, and Achish rides up with all of his forces and David and his men 400, um, 600, excuse me, coming up. Behind him, and the rest of the Lord see this, and they, they say, "Who is that? Who, what are these Hebrews doing here? He cannot, being uh, under Saul, he cannot fight with us against Saul. Uh, that is evil. They say. That's the actual word they use. And Akish defends David, saying how trustworthy he has been to him, which we find ironic because we know David has not been trustworthy to Akish. And he sends him home. And when he sends him home, ah, we got this working. This is when things really. Hit rock bottom. He's delivered from this situation, um, and, and I, be, I I think David had to be elated as he and his men were making their way from Afek back to Ziklag. I mean, he has been delivered from just the most impossible uh, horns. Uh, He was really caught on the horns of a dilemma and this uh, terrible situation. And I imagine he uh, riding along as they make their way back and him thinking, but for the Lord, if it hadn't been for the Lord, if it hadn't been for the Lord and he imagines the kinds of things to express how God had delivered him. He sees God in that action. It reminds me of Psalm 124 where he actually says, if it hadn't been for the Lord, I can imagine him whether that Psalm relates to that specific situation, but he could be riding along and thinking, what was was the you know, kind of imagery of my situation? I was like a bird caught in a snare. And that's actually in verse 7 of Psalm 124. And I've been released. I've been set free. And as they make their way to uh, Ziklag, as they get near, I don't know if it were smoking and smoldering still, but as they began to write up on what should have been familiar, it wasn't familiar at all. It had been destroyed. It had been burnt to the ground and as they looked for Pete family and and their belongings and their cattle they could not find any and this is when David really hits bottom it says they wept in verse 4 of chapter 30 they wept until they could weep no more they had no more strength to weep and at that time the men that were with David exhausted as they were they held stones in their hands to stone David they wanted to kill him and it says David was greatly distressed in verse 6 of chapter 30 greatly distressed which echoes the condition of Saul in chapter 28 What occurs in chapter 28 with Saul is out of chronological order, which means it actually occurs after chapter 30. It occurs the day before Saul goes into battle. And in that chapter, verse 15, it says, Saul was greatly distressed. What we have here is this disjunction for the point of comparing Saul and David. Will David, under being greatly distressed, will he, unlike Saul, express and demonstrate faith that Saul had never demonstrated, that had characterized his reign, a reign of doing your own thing? What we are to see in chapter 30, verse 6, is given us at the very end of the verse, and David strengthened his hand in the Lord his God. His God. That expression, strengthened his hand in the Lord, is one we might remember when Jonathan came to David and strengthened his hand. What he did, Jonathan took the promises of God and took the hand of David and put David's hand into the promises of God and strengthened him in the Lord. Jonathan isn't here on this occasion, but David is already aware that what happened being sent home and freed from having to fight that battle had to be of the Lord. And this Things went from bad to worse. But here at rock bottom, he turns to the Lord and he strengthens his hand in the Lord, remembering the promises of God to him. I don't know if you've ever hit rock bottom. I have. I just wanted to mention quickly seven things you can learn from hitting rock bottom. First, We can discover just how far off course we are when we hit rock bottom. Because when we hit rock bottom, we face ourselves, our dysfunctional behaviors, and at that time we sort out what's true and what's false. A second thing is we can realize that we are, in fact, not where we thought we were in life. A lot of times we think we're headed up. And uh, it's when we find ourselves at rock bottom that we realize our path of success is not a path to success at all. And we're not where we thought we were. A third thing, we gain humility. We discover we don't know everything. In fact, we know very little and we turn from being a juror to a learner. A fourth thing we can learn when we've hit rock bottom is that we experience new depths of compassion because when we are at our depths like that we understand what it's like for others. And we can appreciate what maybe we didn't appreciate when we look down on others. But when you're at the bottom, you look over. A fifth thing, we can let go of everything when we hit rock bottom. We can let go of everything because nothing is working anyway. Hitting bottom wakes us up to how we rely on meaningless stuff that doesn't really matter. Hitting rock bottom can actually be a very precious experience in our lives because it opens our hearts and our minds to how vital God is and how vital he should be to our lives. You know, the good news, and this would be the sixth thing, is that once we've hit rock bottom, we know we can't go any lower, and that's good. But it is at the bottom, and this is the seventh thing, we can become enormously grateful and forever grateful thereafter. Enormously grateful and appreciative of things that we didn't appreciate before. Hitting rock bottom can be a good place to be. I'm not saying that David experienced all those things, but I have. And it's at that place that God is right where he wants us because we need to come with open hands to him. We need to come to him realizing that we can do all things, as Paul said, through Christ who strengthens me. Not in our own strength, but in His. But we don't have to wait to hit rock bottom. And I want us to appreciate how recovery begins when we turn to the Lord. And this we see uh, in verses 6b through 31. There's some incredible things that occur here. David took his strength from the Lord. And it opens his heart to seeing God in everything and seeing God at work in his life and leading him. He not only uh, turns to the Lord, but he seeks his presence and consults the Lord. He turns to Abiathar and seeks God's will through the ephod. Nobody really knows exactly how the ephod works, but it does confirm in yes or no it seems from what all the experts say and everything I've read, it seems to confirm questions and answers. And David asks, he doesn't know who has done this. He doesn't know it's the Amalekites. He doesn't know if it's the Perizzites, the Jebusites, or the Whatchamacallites, but um, it's, it's somebody that has raided and taken everything. And so you've got to picture this. He, he's hit rock bottom. His men are ready to stone him. He's lost everything. He turns to the Lord. He seeks the Lord's face and presence. He consults the Lord, and the Lord confirms that if they pursue this band as tired and exhausted as they are. How tired and exhausted? 200 men of 600 want to remain. They just cannot go on. That's why I wanted you to appreciate some of the distance. And already David has had a change of heart. If he was working on his own plans and strength, he would have required them to go with him because he would be giving up human strength. But he tells them they can stay. And he sets off with the 400. They cross the Wadi Besor, and as soon as they cross it, they're out in the Negev, the desert area. You know, just imagine how wide open the spaces are. And I've been down there in the Negev. I mean, you can see for miles from a high spot. It is barren. And what do they come upon? They come upon an Egyptian. He's been left for dead. He's been there three days. David and his men give him food and water, and they start asking him questions. What are you doing out here? He says, well, I've been a slave of the Amalekites. They left me behind when I couldn't keep up, which shows you what kind of hearts they have. And he says, what were you up to? And he says, well, we were raiding these cities. We were over in the Judean Negev. We were over there in the Philistine Negev. We even raided Ziklag, David's own city. And David, in finding that Egyptian, is able to know just exactly where to find the Amalekites that have raided him with the 400 men. And it's interesting that they recover everything. And in the battle to recover all of their things, their wives, their children, their cattle, their belongings, they they acquire so much more because they acquire all of that treasure, if you will, spoils of their raids on others. And it says that in this battle, they were greatly outnumbered, but 400 fled. Another thing that happens right at the time that David and, and his men are at Ziklag uh, while they're grieving is some mighty men From the tribe of Manasseh. And this is not told to us in 1 Samuel, but it's told to us in 1 Chronicles 12, 19 through 21, that they come and join David and so provide some reinforcements. And so what we have a picture here is of God meeting David's needs, leading in his life, working in his life, all happening when David gives the Lord the central place in his life. What's interesting is the grace grace and generosity of David. It's really a changed heart. He gives God the credit. Gratitude expresses gratitude for, for God's grace. Here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies the Lord's enemies and what he has accomplished. In fact, when they return, the 200 that had left, the rest don't want to share any of the plunder. It's specified as David's plunder, which is separate from the additional. And for, out of that, David says, look, at, this is not based on merit, this is based on grace. You shall not do so, my brothers, which they want basically to say they didn't fight so they don't get anything and he says with what the lord has given this is in 3023 verse 23 with what the lord has given god has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us and then david distributes not only to his men but he distributes to friends and chiefs of judah and he distributes the goods and creates a good name for himself because it's all of God's doing and I don't feel like I'm doing a very good job of really painting a a colorful picture here but when David starts really trusting and letting the Lord lead in his life he's doing things that are to his advantage that he doesn't even realize Because out of this gracious heart, he leans on the Lord. He believes and trusts that the Lord will be guiding them and take care of them. He leaves the 200 behind. When they battle those forces, 400 flee. Well, that's as many as David had brought. And... What's powerful is out of all those resources, David just doesn't divide it among themselves. He divides it among others, and he doesn't realize it yet because they're going to get the news. This is among some who didn't support him when he was fleeing Saul. And in this process, by acting graciously and as the Lord would have us act, he is building support for him when the news reaches people's that Saul has died. With God, broken pieces are not wasted. Nothing's wasted with the Lord. There are times in all of our lives when we run from Him. Sometimes we hit rock bottom, but wherever we are, it may just be a piece of our life that's out of place. We need to remember that nothing is wasted with God. And when we turn to Him, He can turn all of those things and begin to work in our lives as we walk with Him and trust Him in ways that we can't even fully see and appreciate. But that's what happens when we wait upon the Lord. Will you stand with me? I don't know where you are with the Lord this morning you may be right where he wants you close to him in every respect there may be an area of your life where you're just having a difficult time trust him and in in that area of your life you may be running from him in some ways I hope that what we see out of these chapters in David's life when he was in the desert for sure that when we turn to the Lord we can expect great things from God. Even if we're deterred because we feel like, you know, things have been broken and can't be repaired. Maybe we oddly think there's no point in going back. God can't fix that or letting him control in my life in this area. But here we have an example of something that's true throughout scripture. That when we love the Lord and trust him and let him lead us and guide us, when we consult him, lean on him for strength and wisdom, he does great things that exceed even our best laid imaginations. I hope in your life today you will trust the Lord. Let me close this in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Just such real people in your word because you are a real God, and you work with real people. That's who we are. We want you to be great in our lives. We pray, Father, that you will teach us, school us in the school of faith and trust as we seek to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.